Welcome to the 202nd episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Rutherford. Stay tuned for my interview with Laura Bickle, author of the novel Dark Alchemy. Stay tuned for the interview. This episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast is sponsored by Archer Mayer, New York Times bestselling writer of the Joe Gunther Mystery Series. The 26th Joe Gunther Mystery Novel, The Company She Kept, was published last year. The New York Times Book Review wrote, Archer Mayer's Vermont Police Procedurals are the best thing going. The critically acclaimed Joe Gunther Mystery Novels are available at your local bookstore or as ebooks. Find out more about Archer Mayer and the Joe Gunther series at archermayer.com. Well, welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Laura Bickle. Laura's latest novel is Dark Alchemy. She has also written two contemporary fan- fantasy novels under the pen name Elena Williams. Laura, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Sure. Well, can I have you read a couple of pages from your new novel, Dark Alchemy? Oh, sure. That would be fun. I'm going to go ahead and uh, pick uh, something sort of toward the beginning. Great. A lone elm stood alone in the center of the field, gnarled with age and reaching toward the sky with bent and twisted branches. It had been here ever since he could remember, which was a very long time. The cool shadow of it pressed on his face, the breeze rustling through its leaves. Somewhere above, a raven perched, calling to its fellows. They came here at sunset, the ravens, all to this place. Men like Rutherford called it the hangman's tree. It still bore scars in its lower branches where ropes had scraped away the bark. But Rutherford had little idea of what it really was, beyond knowing that Gabe and his men needed it. The alchemist had called this the Lunaria the alchemical tree of life. Where its branches stretched to a heaven above, its roots reached down into the earth in perfect symmetry. As above, so below, Gabriel muttered. The alchemist had said it first. The ravens gathered in the molten light, calling to themselves, roosting in the tree by the dozens. Black wings flapped in the leaves, and the lunaria took on the impression of something more intensely alive than a singular tree, moving, shifting in that pure breeze and cacophony of black feathers. Gabe knelt, feeling the dry grass prickle his palms as he searched for the door. He found a hidden root, pulled open a rusty door covered with turf and dirt. He climbed inside the hole, away from the light and grass and the cackling of ravens. It smelled like damp earth here, like a root cellar kissed by floodwater. The fingers of roots brushed Gabe's face as he dropped below the surface. This place was one of many rabbit holes the hanged men had dug over time to go to ground. Rutherford had little knowledge of the warren of tunnels that worked beneath the field, the barn, even his own house. As far as he was concerned, the boys disappeared and reemerged at will. Gabe's vision gradually adjusted as he stepped into the dark. He could see the dirt walls and uneven floor of the tunnel as he wound deep into the earth. He looked down at his clothes. They were streaked with golden light, like frozen sunshine. He could taste it in his mouth, and he spat it out on the floor of the tunnel. The tunnel opened up to a chamber directly beneath the tree. Roots reached out in all directions. Gabe could feel the pulse of water and light through the living wood as tendrils dug through the earth, warming after nutrients in the soil. The other men were already there. 
They dangled motionless from the ceiling of the chamber, roots wrapped around their necks and arms, the grotesque fruit of the Lunaria. Gold light pulsed through the silent roots into their bodies, feeding them, regenerating what seemed to be corpses buried underground. Gabe and the rest of Sal's men could stay away from the Lunaria for a day, or even a handful of them, but they always needed to return, (laughs) to feel the embrace of the tree. Gabe reached upward, feeling the roots wind around his hands, shoulders, and throat. As the Lunaria lifted him into itself, he awaited the cold sunshine dripping into his veins, bringing with it the chill of sleep. As above, so below. Great. <laughs> and I, I, I apologize. I'm, I'm, I'm coughing here. I'm gonna have to do some post editing. Um, I'm, I'm just getting over a cold. But uh, oh, dar- me too. No worries. <laughs> okay. Well, 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 dark alchemy has been described by your publisher as Stephen King's The Gunslinger meets Break- Breaking Bad. How would you describe? <coughs> Sorry. How would you describe dark alchemy to someone who hasn't heard about your new novel yet? Well, many westerns begin with the idea. Uh, of a stranger coming to town, and this story is really no exception. Geologist Petra D. arrives in this little town of Temperance, Wyoming, to find clues about her father's disappearance decades before. And over the course of her investigation, she stumbles across this string of weirdly desiccated bodies that she can't explain something. And she finds herself in a war among the local cattle baron, his undead minions, and a drug-dealing alchemist. So it's very weird West meets contemporary fantasy. Great. Well, are you planning to write more novels about Petra D? You know, I would love to do that if the opportunity presents itself. So fingers crossed. (laughs) I hope that it's a big world and I would love to play in it some more. Sure, sure. Well, I know you've written dark fantasy novels. What is the appeal of dark fantasy or paranormal for you? You know, as a little girl, I was always kind of, Afraid of the dark. <laughs> so I was forever lying in bed as a kid imagining uh, the monsters that were uh, crawling around under my bed and in the closet. I think it's pretty natural to uh, want to write about things that scare you. Um, at least it is for me. There's a kind of a certain fascination there that by writing about it and uh, kind of noodling around with it, uh, you might be able to master it in some strange way. Well, did you grow up wanting to be a writer? Uh, No. Actually, I I did do writing, but it was mostly for fun. I was one of those kids that uh, had a uh, crayon in her hand and was writing stories from the time that I was very small. Um, But I uh, went to school for criminal justice and later on for library science. And I'm a total data nerd professionally. And it was only uh, maybe around 2009 that I started pursuing publication. And I attended some writers' conferences, and I had the good fortune to run into editors and fellow writers. And by 2011, I had acquired an agent, uh, the fabulous Becca Stump from Prospect Agency, and she's been hard at work selling my work ever since. And 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 I'm curious was there was there kind of a defining moment that you can remember when you you know uh, were already professionally um, established with your library science degree, et cetera, where you, where you said, you know, I want to, uh, uh, try to be a fiction writer and, 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 and write novels. Was there, was there kind of a light bulb moment for you, so to speak? Well, I had a lot of uh, stories and books that I had written that were living in shoe boxes under the bed. And, um, <laughs> as, as all writers do. 
And the shoebox pile kept growing and growing. And I thought, well, maybe I should try to do something with this. Um, maybe experiment, <laughs> see if there's any commercial viability for it, see if anybody else really wants to read what I've written. And, um, you know, at that time I had the luxury of of, of having a, a backup day job, so the risk was not <laughs> all that terribly great. So I just decided to try it. Um, as I said, I think my first love always was writing. Um, as a little girl, I was um, hanging out in the uh, library every summer. Um, my mother was a school librarian, and I used to hang out in the mythology section, which was this really neat, uh, sunshiny area with uh, dust moats and uh, a hardwood floor, and I would just sit there and spread out all the books and, and devour them. So, yeah, I think that's where that came from. And and so you you just described this image of, of these novels underneath your bed and and, and shoeboxes. Was that something that you were just doing for fun over the years? Yeah, I was. Um, it was just kind of a, a way for me to to process whatever was going on in my uh, daily life and and do a little bit of escapism and just to kind of experiment because when you're writing a book that's in a shoebox, there's no judgment. Um, you're you're free to do uh, whatever you like and to experiment and sort of figure out what works and what doesn't. And, you know, it was a cheap hobby. <laughs> sure, sure. What was it like when you started showing that for uh, publication or for someone else to give you feedback? Was that a difficult process for you? You know, it was pretty terrifying. Um, <laughs> I think everybody, <laughs> whenever you're doing any kind of creative work, whether um, – you're uh, making quilts or, or gardening or writing a book or playing music, um, there's always a fear of being judged. And um, I think I learned a little bit to separate myself from, from the work, uh, that when the work is finished, it goes out into the world and folks are going to judge it uh, for good or for ill, but it has a life of its own at that point. And it doesn't need me to uh, hover over it and protect it as much as it does when it's in the creation process. I, I really guard things very jealously when they're in the draft process until I feel that they have hatched and they are ready to uh, leave the nest. And once they've left the nest, they're gone. That's great. Well, what is your writing process like? Do you, do you outline extensively or do you write more organically? Well, um, in the plotting versus pantsing debate, I am definitely a plotter. Um, the blank page scares the living daylights out of me. <laughs> so, yeah, I always begin with a two- or three-page synopsis, and uh, this is a roadmap that helps me figure out the story arc and where I'm going to go with it. And I want to have a definite idea of the beginning and the middle and the end of the story. And that's not to say that I don't follow research rabbit holes and find serendipities and such, but... Working with a synopsis helps me discuss the idea with my agent and my editor, uh, because I think most writers are like this. We have a lot more ideas than would be realistic to commit to paper, and this really kind of helps you sort out and weed out which ones are more viable in the market. So if I can uh, come up with a two- or three-page synopsis, I can email it to my agent and talk about it with her. And I'm not really all that squeamish. I really want to get a thumbs up or thumbs down rather than spend a year or two puttering on a book that nobody's ever going to see and that nobody will ever really like and want to read. And if it's a sequel book, I want to have something to discuss with an editor so that the editor can approve the general gist of it and she knows what she's getting so that six months down the road she doesn't have this steaming pile of something on her desk <laughs> <that is laughs> completely um, not what she wanted. 
So, yeah, I think part of it's preference and part of it's necessity. Sure, sure. Well, what advice would you have for aspiring writers who may be listening and would one day want to sell their own novels or short stories? Well, the first piece of advice I would have would be to try National Novel Writing Month, and that's at NaNoWriMo.org. And what it is is a challenge each November to chuck all of your excuses and write 50,000 words in a month. And it was a huge revelation for me because one of my friends in my uh, writer's group had mentioned that she was going to give it a try, and she was really you know, bugging me to, to give it a shot. And it was a revelation for me because I had a manuscript at that point that I'd been working on for four or five years and it still really wasn't finished. But what NaNoWriMo did for me was it got me out of my head and it got me out of uh, the whole inner editor criticism loop and it forced me to produce to a deadline. And it really, what I learned in that process is something that I've used with every other book I've written since. Um, The most important thing an aspiring writer can do to further their career is to finish the work and go to the next work and finish it. Um, NaNoWriMo is really unbeatable in that respect. And and that was something you felt like you had to learn through, through NaNoWriMo? Well, as a perfectionist, I did because I would plink around with stories and novels for forever and I would keep tweaking and I would feel that they weren't good enough and I'd go back and I would take two steps forward and three steps back. And this really kind of forced me to get it done. Um, There's a good deal of competition in the process too. You can kind of sign up and uh, uh, compete with your friends on your daily Mm -hmm. word counts and such. Um, But you know, it's writing is like any other career. It's about getting things done. And there's nothing better than that feeling of having a completed manuscript and knowing that you can do this. If you were given a deadline and someone says, hey, can you get this uh, concept done in six months, that you know that you can do it. It's a really powerful feeling. Sure, sure. Um, I'm curious, uh, when you started submitting for publication, did you go back to some of those manuscripts that were under the bed, or or did you consider that kind of your training ground, and then you kind of move forward from there? <laughs> I do have some manuscripts under the bed. Um, I've got, oh gosh, I think there's a 250,000-word epic fantasy hmm. that is uh, back there in tissue boxes in the dark, and uh, it's probably surrounded by dust bunnies right now. <laughs> but I think I learned a lot with those books. Um, I learned... Um, that, yeah, 250,000 words is a really, really hard sell. <laughs> sure. Um, but, yeah, I think that, you know, we also have to be gentle with ourselves and say, okay, some of these are going to, some books are going to work and some are not. And to realize, not to pin all of one's hopes on, on one work. And if one thing doesn't work, just keep trying and try something new. Sure, sure. Well, what are you working on now? Can you talk about that a little bit? Well, I've got a couple of dark fantasy projects in the works. Um, I don't have any details right now to share, but sure. I will share as they emerge on my website, which is uh, laurabickle.com. Great. I was just about to ask you where, where people could find you online if they were interested in learning more. Right. Yeah, I'm at laurabickle.com. I'm at author 
Laura.Bickle on Facebook and Laura underscore Bickle on Twitter. Apparently, there are a lot of Laura Bickles out there in the world, so you have to get creative. (laughs) (laughs) Great. Well, again, we've been speaking with Laura Bickle, author of Dark Alchemy, her latest novel. You can pick up Dark Alchemy or Bickle's earlier novels at your local bookstore today or buy them as ebooks. And Laura, thanks for doing this interview. Thanks so much for having me. It was a lot of fun. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.